Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash XVK. This independent learning activity is funded by Eli Lilly Canada Incorporated. Since 2004, we have learned that there are driver mutations in lung cancer that we can harness to be able to garner amazing durable responses. And we've seen some of the best overall survival statistics that we've ever noted in lung cancer. And over this last decade, we have recognized that it's not just EGFR, but there are multiple driver mutations that we can identify in our patients with non-small cell lung cancer. If we look here, we can see that the most prevalent driver mutation is KRAS. The next most prevalent driver mutation is EGFR. And one thing to know about EGFR is that it is actually one of the driver mutations that's most influenced by ethnic background. So you do have to understand your patient population that you're treating to understand the likelihood of finding some of these different driver mutations. We keep looking down the list, we start to see things that are rarer and rarer, such as RET fusions, ROS1 fusions, and even NTRAC fusions. We're going to be speaking today about the importance of understanding molecular profiling throughout the journey of a patient with lung cancer to make sure we have optimal knowledge with respect to their treatment options. When we think about patients with driver mutations, one thing to recognize is that we do see some differences in responses to the different treatments. You can see here their response rates are lower to things like our standard of care immune checkpoint inhibitors, which is the treatment we would give if we were agnostic to the fact that they had a driver mutation. If I bring this forward, one of the struggles we have is when we sequence patients with treatment, there is consequences to what we do. We have learned through a series of clinical trials that using targeted therapies in the setting of having an immune checkpoint inhibitor on board can actually lead to severe toxicities. And we've got to remember that our immune checkpoint inhibitor antibodies can be around for many, many weeks after that last infusion. So we don't even know when the safe washout period is for us to be able to then bring in that targeted therapy. So in Canada, historically, we wait for our molecular testing to be completed and we choose our best therapy once we have the molecular testing done. Our patients with driver mutations are more likely to be very light or even lifelong never smokers. And that should raise your eyebrows whenever you take a history from a new lung cancer patient. When I have a patient who has never smoked, I put every effort forth to make sure that they get as broad a molecular profiling as possible. For me, that means both DNA testing as well as RNA testing to look for point mutations as well as translocations, which can be found across the spectrum of lung cancer. Now, we shouldn't just test our patients who were never smokers. Smokers can have driver mutations too, but more commonly our smokers are going to have mutations in KRAS or even BRAF or MET skipping mutations. If we look at the different driver mutations, we can see that there is an incredibly high rate of response to targeted treatment. Our third generation EGFR and ALK inhibitors have response rates that are 80% or greater. With some of our fusions like ROS1 and RET and NTRAC, you're seeing response rates that are in the high 60s, even mid-70s. If you've got a stage four lung cancer patient, they should all be reflexively tested with a next generation sequencing panel that covers at least the grouping that you see above, as well as immunohistochemistry for PDL1. So those are the classic mutations where we have Health Canada approved treatments that we can potentially access. If someone has 
an aberration in one of these, by and large, we would start with a targeted therapy. We've been very fortunate to have wonderful consensus guidelines that have been published about what we should be doing to optimize testing for targetable alterations in lung cancer. So for example, we should be doing comprehensive panels. We should no longer be doing single analyte testing if it can be avoided. When we look at the different tests that we should do, ideally it should be a one-stop shop. We want to detect all mutation types relevant for targetable alterations. Ideally, we should be getting this testing upfront as reflex by the pathologist. And we're very fortunate now that this is something that is generally funded across this country. They also make some comments in here about complementary tests like liquid biopsies. Lung cancer biopsies are tricky, and we aren't always able to get a large specimen that will adequately profile a patient. So sometimes we need to use multiple sources of nucleic acids, including circulating nucleic acids like DNA and RNA, to be able to molecularly profile our patients. Last but not least, things are becoming complicated. So we do need the support of molecular tumor boards at our sites to help us interpret some of these more complicated pathology reports. One of the complexities is, is there's multiple different technologies that can be implemented to be able to do the tests. So immunohistochemistry is really reserved for ALK fusions, as well as PDL1, which is an important biomarker for our patient testing as well. We do FISH mainly for our fusions. That's one of the confirmatory tests that can be done. PCR can be done for the vast majority of the mutations. But again, this is a single analyte test. So you have to do a separate PCR for every single mutation you're looking for. And that exhausts tumor tissue too, too quickly. So we only do this historically as a confirmation or in certain circumstances where if you only could do one test, sometimes a PCR is the quickest thing to do. You can see here the next generation sequencing covers all of the bells and whistles we would like. So this is why this is our recommendation for the best test that can be completed. So what do we do in the community when things aren't working out? This was just in my clinic this week. We had a woman who has metastatic lung cancer, lifelong smoker. She had her NGS. The DNA portion was completed and was negative. The RNA portion failed, which I was actually okay with knowing that she was a lifelong smoker, but they didn't keep enough tumor tissue to do PDL1. That was the one test I really needed. I would highly advocate for us to help our pathologists know what we want to prioritize. I would love to take a box that says, this person's a lifelong smoker, prioritize PDL1. This patient is a lifelong never smoker, prioritize next generation sequencing. So we need to ensure that information is getting to our pathologists. The other thing I want to advocate for is the concept of integrating liquid biopsies as part of our workup. It is very frustrating to sit in front of a patient who's been waiting patiently for what could be two months for their full molecular diagnosis, only to find out that they had less than 5% tumor cellularity. And so therefore their next generation sequencing is inadequate. Do I rebiopsy? It can take me four weeks to get another biopsy and then take another eight weeks to get their molecular genetics back. If we implemented the liquid biopsy in this patient where our first efforts have failed to get an adequate molecular testing, we can draw two tubes of blood. It can go straight from molecular genetics and complete the profile. Now that doesn't work for PDL1, but this is something I think we should implement for those patients to expedite testing where their first pass of testing has been inadequate. 
So in summary, I'm thrilled to have entered an era of lung cancer management that is filled with so many options for targeted treatments that are guided by molecular testing. We need to insist that reflex testing is the way to go, and we want comprehensive genomic profiling, and really that's the most efficient way to get adequate testing. Again, the key is getting adequate samples, and this requires a group effort with the people who are making the diagnosis of lung cancer, as well as the pathologists who are handling the tissue. And then last but not least, getting these patients to us early so we have the opportunity to treat and extend the lives and the quality of those lives for as many lung cancer patients as we can across this country. Thank you very much for your time today. Today, we're going to talk about rare mutations in lung cancer. Why it's important that we look for these rare mutations or any mutation, because if we have an inhibitor that works, those patients are going to benefit from it. RET is a perfect example of this. We didn't look for it 10 years ago. We're looking for it now because we've got two great inhibitors that can give responses and make those patients' quality of life better. So it's really important for all our patients to get an opportunity to be tested for not only the common mutations, which are EGFR, ELK, and KRAS-12C, but these rare mutations. So focusing on RET alterations, RET fusions are what are seen in lung cancer. They are very rare. Only 1% to 2% of patients with non-small cell lung carcinoma. I've seen two in my practice. These are patients that are often younger, non-smokers, and about half of them have brain metastases over their lifetime. Chemotherapy is what's used in the first-line setting, and you can see from the literature that the response rate of a platinum doublet with pemetrexid were 51%. Now, the interesting thing to talk about for all these rare mutations is the role of immunotherapy and checkpoint inhibitors. One of the most common things we do is add checkpoint inhibitors to chemotherapy in the first-line setting. But that's not always the right thing to do. We learned from earlier trials of combination with checkpoint inhibitors that they really don't benefit the mutations like EGFR and ELK because those patients are non-smokers, their tumor mutation burden is low, and they were not allowed in a lot of the trials that we're now seeing. Now, there are some rare mutations that that rule does not follow, like KRAS-12C. Those are sort of primed up to benefit from immunotherapy. But I think the bottom line for rare mutations, and I'm going to say EGFR, ELK, ROS, NTREC, NRG, and now RET, checkpoint inhibitors really have a little activity. And again, now that we have these RET inhibitors, we are prolonging patients' lives. Looking at the ESMO guidelines, and these are quite recent, you can see for RET, they talk about both selpercatinib and prostaglandin. The two agents that are approved in Canada, selpercatinib was highly selective and a potent RET inhibitor with CNS activity. It's approved for metastatic RET fusion-positive non-smell cell and a RET-altered thyroid. Prostaglandin is a highly potent oral-selective RET inhibitor. Again, targeting RET alterations regardless of the tissue of origin. It's improved for RET-altered lung. ASCO guidelines or CCO are a little bit different. They recommend in stage four non-small cell with a driver mutation that the first-line setting sulpercatinib can be added or can be offered. And if the patient has already had first-line treatment, the RET targeted therapy can be given in the second line. So a little bit different than the European. But I think the bottom line is if you find a mutation, you should inhibit it in the first-line setting. And my own personal opinion is if you miss that, second-line setting can be given as well. 
We know from earlier evidence from the libretto trials with sulpercatinib and the arrow trials with prosatinib. If you look at the efficacy summary, now these are excellent drugs. The response rate is 61% and treatment naive, it was as high as 84% with sulpercatinib. And in terms of prosatinib, the response rate was 63% and in treatment naive, it rose to 77 So again, highlighting that if you find this mutation, think about treatment in the first line setting. In terms of safety, I think there's some very common hypertension. You can see that the grade three toxicity is also included AST, ALT, or liver transaminase, and in prostatin it was neutropenia. I think the beauty of both drugs is their intracranial response. Both were designed to penetrate the blood-brain barrier. Now, talking about brain metastases, they're really hard to sometimes determine response because they have to be of a certain size. For resist criteria, they can't have been radiated often. Patients have to have stable brain mass to get on the trial. So when you look at trials, not only with RET, EG4L, you have to take that all into account. You can see from the phase 1-2 trial by Subaya that the response rate in brain was 82%, which is high. And Dr. Dillon presented his data as well, where the intracranial response rate with sulpercatinib was 85%. So that really tells you that this drug is doing something for those brain metastases. Well, I'm going to move now to the phase three data with sulpercatinib, and that was presented at this year's ESMO Madrid just recently. This is an exciting trial that made the oral stage sulpercatinib in treatment naive patients against chemotherapy, and the investigator could give pembrolizumab with it. The primary endpoint of PFS was met by the Blinded Independent Review Committee. You can see those patients that got chemo or chemo and pembro did the same. So I think this is an important slide to really break down that concept that in non-smokers with driver mutations, the use of checkpoint inhibitors doesn't add anything in the first-line setting. Well, the systemic response rate was 83.7, again, really great. It was also quite high in the control arm of chemotherapy is 65%, but 83.7 looks like EGFR. This is what we want to see. And it was durable. The response lasted almost two years and the control was much less. Now, in the intracranial outcomes, again, numbers are small. The subpercatinib, only 17, had brain mass that could be measured in this trial, and the control had 12. And you can see the response rate is 82.4%. And again, small numbers are really, I think, bringing home that this drug penetrates in brain and is beneficial to the patient. In terms of adverse events, patients with subcatinib did have more safety signals, but they were on the drug for a longer time. And most of these are grade one to two. And the patients that I've treated, both of them had hypertension. One of them had constipation, not diarrhea. And neither of them had liver enzymes. And both of them had creatinine increases. So I think we're going to see that it is different. There were not many patients that discontinued subcatinib. So here it's 10%. When the trial is always much higher in your own practice because you can do things in your own practice, I think what's probably most important is the dose adjustments. They were quite high in both groups. And I think that we'll see in the future as most of us try to use these drugs that discontinuation drops lower because we're learning how to dose adjust. Well, I'm going to give you a couple takeaways for this presentation. Rare mutations should be looked for. They're rare, but if you're the patient that has it, it's not rare to you. And we've got two really great RET inhibitors that can not only prolong life, but make those patients' quality of life better. I think that first-line trial with uppercatinib is a perfect example that checkpoint inhibitors don't always belong in the first-line setting with chemotherapy. If you find a mutation, you should inhibit it in the first-line setting. Thank you for joining me today. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.